For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out about the podcast Epilogue that explores the grief of losing a loved one to suicide. A very short, short story about romance adrift at sea by Oralee Sheehan. And ambient musician Steve Roach talks about creating the album A Soul Ascends, a final farewell to his mother. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Losing a loved one to suicide is a unique tragedy. Beyond the grief, there is the regret, the unanswered questions, and often there is anger at the person who chose to end their life. In trying to come to terms with the suicide of his father, Galen McCaw, an aspiring filmmaker, audio producer, and former employee of AZPM, found himself interviewing others who had been through the experience. The result is the first episode of a podcast called Epilogue that McCaw produced with writer and editor Laura Bargefeld. I wanted to ask Galen McCaw about the journey of creating Epilogue and if it was helpful in dealing with the overwhelming emotions in the aftermath of suicide. So I met Hannah in film school. We were working on a a student film project together, I think, around when her sister Bree died. And I did not know that at the time. In fact, I didn't find out for more than a year. Um, And she reached out after she found out that my dad died by suicide. And so like our first conversation we had about it was really just focused on sort of the circumstances of her sister's death and what that was like for her and her family. And we talked a lot just about what dealing with that in the aftermath um, has been like for her um, and sort of the conflict that it created in her family. So it seems like her family is somewhat of a complex unit. There's abuse factors, there's addiction. The fact that her mother came from a very large family with 17 children, and she says that six of them perished through violence and addiction issues. That's a startling statistic um, for any family. It's a third of the family. What was your route to building connections and to building trust with Hannah's family? I think just being willing to be vulnerable myself, it was sort of a line I was trying to walk between being like the interviewer producer and just being like someone who had a similar experience. The interviews that we did were much more conversational than what got sort of edited down into the final product. Um, It was a lot more back and forth. I, I shared a lot. And I think until someone has that uh, shared experience, it, it's pretty hard to feel comfortable being totally candid about all the complexity of losing somebody to suicide or, you know, dealing with a loved one who has serious mental illness or something like that. So I led with that. And I think that went a long way towards making them feel like they could share their story. This is Bree's mother talking about her daughter's suicide. You know, one of the things I miss the most with her is being able to have that continued adult relationship 
I remember we went out to dinner and we probably were in that restaurant for four hours. We went to Fleming's and we just couldn't stop talking. We were just having so much fun. It was friends talking about life, you know, as two married women who were mothers. And uh, when we left, you know, we hugged and um, she, she said, this is the best date I've ever had, Mom. <laughs> so. While you're doing these interviews in the pursuit of eventually creating a podcast, Hannah also has a film project that is a different kind of reflection on her experience. Um, tell, yeah. us, tell us about what that film project was like for her and, and what she felt at the end about that process. And sort of what was interesting to me, because I sort of talked to her throughout that process, was how difficult it was for her. Um, I think a lot of people have this romanticized idea that if you have some sort of artistic outlet to deal with something like a, a loss of someone you love to suicide or, or anything that's that painful, um, that it's going to be super cathartic and it'll sort of give you the outlet you need and like everything will be fine and it'll just be great. Um, and the reality is that it's really hard to do. It's very hard to to face and to to work with on a daily basis, but it's also, um, at least for Hannah, and I would say for me too, um, it's also really important and maybe the only way to move forward in what feels like a constructive way. This is the voice of Hannah. Everything was the same thing, you know, because I couldn't have been focusing on this one film and putting all my efforts into it and then be grieving on the side. Um, that would have just been like too much, I think. And so I was going to try to just find something less emotional like I usually do and just go for something weird and like abstract because that's just my way of like expressing emotion I guess um rather than through expressing it <laughs> so I guess with this film yeah it was kind of me like choosing to just focus on that on like dissecting the emotions of it what Hannah shared with me throughout that whole process is that it was sort of the building block upon which like her family's recovery was built. I mean, I don't think that they would have been able to overcome a lot of the differences they had about how they felt about losing Brie and, and how they wanted to go about dealing with that moving forward. She actually cast her parents in the film as a way basically to force them all to talk about it. I think it was a very intense process, uh, but sort of enabled them to move forward and to talk about it and, you know, argue about it and, and come to consensus and, and just like learn to live with having different ways of grieving, basically. I think it enabled them to keep living with it in a way that was constructive. I think that's one of the major themes that comes through in the podcast is that people do grieve differently. And there's a quote that says, everyone grieves differently, yet everyone kind of wants you to grieve like them. That was Hannah's dad, John. And that's actually what he told me when I asked him to, to do an interview, um, and he never did. And so that was one of the sort of fundamental tensions for their family, varying degrees of willingness or a want or need to talk about it openly with um, people outside the family. And that was sort of his way of telling me that like, you know, despite us having this common experience, he had a different way of dealing with it and that I needed to respect that. And by extension, other people in the family did too. Again, a clip from Epilogue. It's like, <laughs> I didn't love the person I was that much before, so it feels like I have more of a purpose now almost, rather than feeling like you're going through it for no reason. It's like, oh, okay, I kind of know what I'm meant for a little now, more so. Mm. 
than before. And I think it's maybe what made it harder for my parents because they were like, okay, this is my final life. Like, this is the happy ending part. Whereas for me, I'm like, okay, I can start a new life from here. Um, but I mean, I, I know they can too, and I know they have already. It took time to like come into that place, I think, um, and to think like that. So I think we all can, and it's important too. That's how we keep growing. Yeah, letting our old selves go and like letting ourselves learn. You know, I think the reality is that when people are on that threshold, they can only sort of experience their pain or, or whatever it is that's motivating that in that moment. Many, many people who attempt suicide and survive say that as soon as they attempted, they regretted it before they even knew if they were going to live. Um, people who jump from bridges often say the second they leave the bridge, they regret it. The second they swallow the pills, they regret it, whatever it is. Um, and so I do think that the vast majority of people who feel that and, and who don't want to live anymore, that will change. It's just a matter of time and of hanging on until it does. One of the problems with suicide being such a difficult subject to discuss is that people forget that there is help and that yeah. there are people who understand and who have survived it and will help them. If you or you know someone who, who is on the edge of making this decision, right. what would you say to them now with the information that you've gathered? For anyone out there that feels unsafe themselves or knows somebody who they're worried might be considering suicide, there's a national hotline. It's 1-800-273-8255. There's also the crisis text line, which you can just text to 641-641, and you'll be put in touch with a professionally trained crisis counselor. And a lot of people that I've talked to have found those extremely helpful. They've saved a lot of lives. Um, It's definitely worth doing. Um, In the absence of that, I would also just say, don't be afraid to ask someone you know directly if they have ever been or are currently suicidal, um, if they feel safe. Um, You are not going to increase their chances of dying by suicide if you ask. And in fact, I think it can be a great relief for people to just be asked candidly and have someone listen. Um, And the most important thing is giving that person space to talk and not bombarding them, just being a presence with them, making sure that they're heard. Um, You don't need to provide solutions. You just need to make sure they're safe, make sure they're with somebody, um, if that's you or somebody else that they trust. Um, And that can save a life. My guest was Galen McCaw. The podcast is Epilogue. There's a link to listen on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. In her collection, Once Into the Night, Aurelie Sheehan offers 57 stories, ranging in length from two sentences to three pages. Most are written in first person. Aurelie Sheehan is a professor of creative writing at the University of Arizona and receiver of the Catherine Doctorow Innovative Fiction Prize. Sea Travel I spent my early adulthood at sea. I even had a boat 
or my boyfriend did, but we lived together and he was generous in sharing his things. The term early adulthood is a patch of gray laid over whatever those years were, however long they lasted. Now I'm in adulthood, another magazine column category. Here is what I thought of love. Love, definition. Doing things with, having a similar sense of humor as, extracting a future in addition to. The sea was a vivid black, folds of black relentlessly and unpredictably overlapping. Its opaqueness came from how the sun hit the water or from the swallowing of the moon. You simply couldn't see. I couldn't see anyway. Life was long. It was a bit cheap and certainly plentiful. Maybe even too long. A great amount of this one capacious thing, like a basket of yarn, crushed and laced together, mixed up and knotted and not yielding. We brought sandwiches on the boat with us, or sometimes a thermos of soup. If we were traveling some distance, I was obliged to pee in a bucket. Afterward, he would lie on the deck and drop the bucket down on its rope, and the seawater cleaned out the interior. We liked pecan sandies for dessert. When we were in the long process of breaking up, yet still grocery shopping together on Sundays, we were confused about what to buy, unsure if we would be together for the whole week. Should we buy our typical meals, our favorite items? Should we buy misery food or just very, very plain food, no salt or sauce? It was a package of pecan sandies that made us feel the saddest on one of those grocery runs back in early adulthood. Sometimes on the boat, I stared at the horizon. This was even before the weeks and months of tearing apart. Something already felt sad in the world. Perhaps it was the sea itself, the difference between the opaque surface and the steely gravity underneath. Perhaps it was my inability to distinguish between having a vast basket of yarn and having just a little yarn left. I wish I could tell you of our travels. Some of the places we went were fancy, and we dressed in vintage clothing and acted like Gatsby, drinking more than the average adult. There was no end to the places that smelled deeply, richly of pine. Pine by the sea, pine in the heart of ancient forests, pine a perfume passed through on our hurried way to the shore or back up from the shore. It was there for you. Aurelie Sheehan read Sea Travel from her short story collection, Once Into the Night. As we heard in the first half of the show, art can help in the process of understanding complex emotions like grief, and it can be used to start difficult conversations. For Steve Roach, a desert-based ambient composer, with two Grammy nominations and a global fan base, music can be used to create space. It can also be a way to say goodbye. His new album, A Soul Ascends, written in the time of the pandemic, is a tribute to his mother's life. Elisa Ivanetskaya talks with Steve Roach about how it came to be. 
you created this album during seven days in mid-April. What was your inspiration and mood at the time? What did you want to express? As life uh, was unfolding there for all of us, I received a phone call from San Diego where my mom was in a uh, memory care home and that call told me that she was sick and then another hour later the phone call came in and that she had passed away uh, that, that quickly. That phone call I knew was coming and she was 91 years old but uh, you know when it comes that you're never really ready for that. At that moment, I immediately moved into this place of wanting to express. It was not a sad feeling. It was a sense of gratefulness and serenity. Just really like wanted to create a piece that would support and accompany her in, in that space that she was into after having passed. As soon as the phone call was over, I came right into the studio and the first sounds that you hear on the album were what I created at that moment. Is The Radiant Return the name of your first track? Is this the metaphor for death? Yes, absolutely. The Radiant Return was about this journey to the other side, that place that we all have our own perception of or our own thoughts around. As I worked on the music over those days, I could not go to San Diego. There was no way to gather and have a ceremony or have a sense of closure in that way because of what was happening with the COVID deal and so everything had to be done remotely with no one there and they said well we could film it on a phone or something I said no there's no way we need to do that that's not how I want to have this experience with her so I set it up and timed everything out to do the final mix on the album the moment they were placing her into the, her final resting place. What kind of instruments have you chosen for this album? The entire album is a more minimal collection of analog synthesizers. What that means ultimately is that they have a very warm, organic sound, and that's the sound that I've chosen through all of my music for years. One of the main instruments that the album was built around is called an Oberheim, an OB-8, and it, it was an early polyphonic synthesizer which means you can play up to eight notes and so that was a very very significant instrument in my early music and it was one that I used on structures from silence and quiet music and on Dreamtime Return. My mom Sylvia helped me to buy the first Oberheim OB-8 I had which was at that time in the early 80s, you could almost buy a car for what those things cost. She knew how much that instrument meant to me and how it might take me, you know, five years to try and buy one. So 
she kicked in and, and helped me buy that and actually did it without telling my father, kind of did it behind his back because he was still, you know, questioning what kind of music is this that you're doing? When are you going to get a real job here? And that is the uh, main voice of the second movement on the album. The music is the medicine. So much of what I've been speaking about here in these abstract terms or in these metaphorical forms that suggest how the music could be used, meaning the music, it, it can really very much enhance the quality of your life. A certain percentage of my audience is tuned into that and they use it for support and self-care. Do altered states of conscious have uh, a role in your music? Absolutely. I mean, expanded states of awareness, consciousness, experience are really one of the prime elements of what I create. So it's really, in a sense, like taking the present moment and just turning the volume up on that. It's really using sound and music to step out from beyond the ordinary to create a window, a passage, a portal out of that in a way that's safe and reliable and also extremely personal and powerful for each individual if they connect to sound and music that way. What kind of space is this music for? The music has the ability to create this supportive space, this space of the present moment, feels like a current that's running all the time. It's all around you. It's an atmosphere that you can't see, but you can hear it. You can feel it as you bring it into your living space. And so I often talk about how the volume level for these more sustained, long-form, 70-minute-long or longer pieces can create this environment that really is supportive and helps bring deeper sense of serenity and well-being into your living environment. A lot of times it can be used for sleeping. I often suggest that you put into loop mode and you, you just set that volume level just down at a much lower level than you would normally think of and then have that playing in a area where it, it's almost like you're, well, you are creating a sonic sanctuary, almost like a place in nature where a stream could be running or you have that nourishing quality that keeps you held in. So that's another big part of the music too, I feel.
hearing music, seeing music, smelling music, to me it's a full synesthesia experience where it's all of those pieces are activated through sound. That's what is so powerful about creating sounds that have never been heard before, is that you can use your own willpower and your imagination and your desire to be sonic archaeologists so that you're moving deeper into your own history beyond just the lifetime that you're tapped into here, but just the the things that we hold down in our consciousness that keeps getting passed along. You mentioned your father who wanted you to get real job. How did you come to this point when you're quite sure about what's worth doing? You might run parallel with certain things that happen in your life where you feel like a light gets turned on suddenly and then you have this instant recognition of many things illuminated that just all make sense. That awakening really came through when I first heard electronic music coming out of Germany at that time in the late 70s and there was something so pure and naturally activating and stimulating and so when I heard this music early on and I was already feeling drawn towards being a painter or working in the arts, everything just lined up. While there was many aspects of myself that were very much needing time to understand how to make all this happen, none of that really came into consideration. All I could think of was I have to be creating with electronic instruments and I have to do this music. From that moment forward, it's been over 40 years of just completely being um, held in that space. This story was produced by Elisa Ivanitskaya. Steve Roach's album, A Soul Ascends, was just released by Project Records and is available through many streaming services. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. Our interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.